welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast on all things ICT infrastructure. I'm your host, Melanie Mingus, editor at Capacity Media, and joining me today, we have Deputy Editor Natalie Bannerman and Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray. And because it's almost time for the Global Carrier Awards, we are joined later in this episode by Chair of the Judging Panel, Carl Roberts. But before we speak to Carl, we are going to talk about the news and a quick roundup of the headlines from recent days. Qualcomm and China's ZTE have recorded peak 5G speeds of 5 Gbps using millimeter wave spectrum. DKIX has added its fifth internet exchange in the US in Phoenix, Arizona, and Fiberco's Adtran and Adva are planning a $1.2 billion merger. Neutrality One has partnered with SmartCIC to extend internet access and cloud-based connectivity to their customers using SD-WAN, and Liquid Intelligent Technologies has launched a point of presence in Miami. Meanwhile, in Greece, Sparkle has launched the country's first green data center, Metamorphosis 2, while elsewhere in data centers, Colt DCS has started construction on its fourth hyperscale facility in Japan, the 45-megawatt Asakihana. Blackstone's acquisition of QTS has been approved by shareholders. Reported as a $10 billion transaction when news of the deal first broke, it is the biggest merger in the history of the data center industry so far. And of course, over the last week, it has also been International Telecoms Week. Um, there are links to all our coverage in the podcast post, but it was part physical event and we had people live on site and live on stage in the US, which is very exciting given how distributed we have all been over the last 18 months. Um, so the recordings from all those sessions will be online throughout September. So do sign up and tune in if you haven't already. Um, but the agenda includes a keynote featuring our very own Alan Burkett Gray, um, interviewing Sunil Bharti Mittal from OneWeb. Um, and also Natalie chaired the Subsea Hour, um, which covered all things to do with one of the fastest growing areas in ICT at the moment. Um, so Alan, Natalie, first of all, welcome back to series three of the Digital Digest and congratulations on another ITW completed. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, yes. um, certainly been a busy few weeks for our team. I would I would say a pretty fair, fair statement to make, um, but it was great. Um, I enjoyed this ITW. It, it was great, wasn't it? Yes, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it was interesting to just get a vision of or a picture of where the industry is at the moment. And there's such a lot going on. Yeah. From <laughs> space down to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right, Alan. I think um, I think you can certainly feel the presence of the satellite operators a lot uh, a lot more strongly than in previous years. Um, I think is a fair a fair assessment. But I think my best moment so far. I don't think anyone can top the fire alarm going off in the middle of my panel session. Um, I think that is certainly um, one to remember for a, for lack of a better word. Yes, I think you did well to not lose your cool <laughs> doing that. Well done. That is correct. Yeah, so you handled that like an absolute pro. Um, for those who haven't tuned in yet, during the um, subsea panel on Wednesday afternoon on the 1st of September, there was a fire alarm about 10 minutes into the discussion. The entire venue had to be evacuated and then very slowly everybody was let back in and the discussion resumed. Um, Natalie was chairing that discussion. Um, there, were, there were a few, yeah, it wasn't ideal, but it was very well handled and everybody Still had a great, great chat and there were some excellent debates as well in that. Um, a lot about redundancy, which was quite interesting to see 
um, the different ways, the different things, sorry, that are being considered in these subsea deployments currently. Um, but yeah, there were fantastic sessions and the prevalence of satellite operators this year was very interesting. The range um, of topics as well on the agenda, I thought was very impressive because over only three days of conference, we did cover, I think it was eight streams altogether. And like you both said, there was emerging technology on there like IoT, um, 5G, which although we talk about it all the time, is actually still in the very early stages. Um, yeah, and obviously we had um, Mr. Mr. Mittal on there as our main keynote for the whole event. Alan, tell me about the kind of things that that he was talking to you about. Well, he did the weird. I think rather gratifyingly, there were no surprises. I would have been rather taken aback if I'd asked the question and he said, oh, no, we just completely changed direction. But he confirmed that they will be launching from 50 degrees to the 50 degree parallel north to the North Pole uh, by the end of this year. Uh, it's sort of slipping a bit, but it's more or less on track. Uh, and then right across the world, June or July next year, June or July 2022. Uh, it will be every square inch of the world, he said, from 648 satellites. So broadband infrastructure everywhere, even if you're miles and miles and miles from any uh, mobile phone tower or bit of fibre. So we should be good. Uh, and of course, they've done a huge job uh, building up investors. Um, Mittel's company has invested a billion dollars. The UK government 500 million, Utilsat 550, uh, SoftBank's in there as well with 350 and Hughes Network Systems with 50. So it's, it's and, and Huanhua, which is the South Korean company, has put in 300 million. So there's a lot of money they've done. They've done a stunning job in, what, 11 months or something like that to put together a whole package of investors. And they're talking to companies like Verizon in the US about using OneWeb to do rural coverage. Uh, BT has already announced that it's going to be talking to, it's working with OneWeb. Airtel, which of course is a sort of sister company of OneWeb, will be. But a lot of others, um, he mentioned Kazakhstan, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and others with some deals, memorandums of understanding rather than hard and fast deals, but memorandums of understanding. Uh, to go ahead and, and they will be wholly, they'll be completely wholesale. OneWeb will be a wholesale carrier in the business. Uh, the only difference between that and sort of fiber wholesale companies is that they'll be using satellite, low Earth orbit satellite, 1200 kilometers above the surface. So any mobile operator or fixed operator or ISP or whatever it might be, will be able to do a deal with OneWeb and offer service in its particular territory. So it really is going to open up the market. So nobody in on the planet by uh, June, July 2022 will be out of range of broadband, which is really quite a stunning change in the way the industry is working or the way the world is connected. We've been using the, uh, the term keeping the world connected for the past 18 months since the uh, pandemic started. And this is actually really will be keeping the world connected. It is interesting to see those those developments coming um, coming to fruition, especially with the broadband everywhere. There'll be no escape. There'll be none of this. Oh, sorry, I can't work remotely this weekend. I'm going to my country house. And <laughs> oh, right, yes. Um, well, you'll need equipment, I guess. But uh, I mean, mo the usual model will be if you're in a small village somewhere in whether it's the north of Scotland or. Uh, a mountainous area of France or somewhere in Brazil or Mali or wherever, 
Pakistan, it will be that you will have a sort of hub in the village that will deliver a Wi-Fi signal or even a 4 or 5G signal to the neighbourhood. Um, so, you know, obviously that will work within a, a limited area, but theoretically you could put a hub in any part of the world. And I think at some point in the future that we will be able to buy one. It will need a dish. Uh, it will need a an antenna. Sorry, not a dish. The whole idea is that you're going to have flat antennas, uh, a bit like a solar panel that you will be able to have on your um, on your suitcase or whatever. So you, um, you put put it by the window. It should be able to pick up some satellite signals. Um, we're going to have to take some time to work out how these things operate best. But theoretically, nowhere in the world will be out of touch, even in the Antarctic and the Arctic, which has been a place that's been completely out of touch. Two places have been completely out of touch for the last since the Internet started, because they're way below. You can't get satellite signals there except for one or two low orbit satellites, which until now have been fairly low bandwidth. But OneWeb and, of course, SpaceX's um, own system that will that will be bringing internet to everywhere and then there's a few following up there's amazon's kuiper project of which we know very little so far if you talk to somebody from amazon they keep mentioning kuiper but there aren't any sort of fixed dates yet but um, spacex and OneWeb are, i think the two leaders in the market Excellent. Um, well, we look forward to seeing how that develops. Um, and Natalie, coming back to your session, um, and fire alarms aside, um, but you were talking about global subsea trends, which is really interesting because it speaks to a similar convergence that Alan's just mentioned, um, particularly how we're going from, you know, interconnected cities to interconnected data centres um, and how all the kind of infrastructure is um, is building up around the world in new ways. Tell us about what um, what your panel was, was talking about. Yeah, so it was a, a bit of a, a mixed bag in terms of what the kind of key trends were. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think that kind of redundancy and that kind of interconnected slash, you know, mesh based of subsea systems really seems to be the uh, the norm now um, in the kind of development of these projects, um, not just interconnected uh, cables with each other, but also subsea cables that are now acting as an extension of terrestrial networks. Um, you know, there's loads of examples I can give, but, you know, one that comes to mind is, for example, like the Zeo um, Zeus cable, which is going to be like heavily interconnected with its existing, you know, terrestrial networks across Europe. Um, um, and really kind of just listening to, uh, you know, the the panelists speak and they were just saying that it's really about adding that um, added redundancy and resiliency to your network. Um, in addition, it's also kind of ties into um, the way in which um, we are backhauling, you know, subsea cable traffic to and from the shore end to the data center, et cetera, because, you know, in uh, Kind of interconnecting the system with kind of a terrestrial network really opens up your options in terms of what data center you want to connect at and how you're getting your data from point a to point b as opposed to kind of landing at the shore end and then kind of having one direct route into one specific data center or what have you um so i think um that aside it's also really interesting um that uh, one of our audience questions was kind of on the question of kind of like uh working with uh, satellite operators unsurprisingly the the kind of consensus there was that it's all about partnerships 
um, and that's you know subsea and satellite as well as terrestrial fiber and everything else in between really just form uh, part of uh, an end-to-end -end solution and it's about partnering together and working together because you can't really have one without the other subsea will continue to be the the quote-unquote arteries that get you know get traffic across you know vast amounts of sea etc um, you know satellite particularly uh, you know as we know rural um, areas will continue to be prevalent um, but it's all kind of about working together and, and kind of giving the most amount of coverage we can uh, for the best amount of service. Um, I would say aside from that, the um, the only other real takeaways was um, um, was also just about, you know, the impact of the kind of COVID-19 pandemic and the spike that we saw, not just in subsea, but infrastructure as a whole, you know, will that continue? Um, again, unsurprisingly, everybody thinks that this is going to be the way that it's going to be. Of course, you know, as things go back to normal, we see each other in person. Um, I think that kind of hybrid working, you know, teleconferencing um, way in which we've been operating for the last 18 months to two years is very much going to continue. So we don't see that demand going anywhere. Um, but I would say in a nutshell that that was pretty much the, the key takeaways. Fantastic. Um, it's interesting um, that you mentioned about the um, subsea to terrestrial um, links as well, because a similar point came up in the state of the market, um, LATAM, session they were talking about how there's all these new subsea cables coming in and out of the south america region um but then the actual terrestrial networks aren't really there to join them up so what happens in between um but fantastic thank you so much guys um well moving on to the news now um we are going to be covering a couple of stories in this episode um but do also stay tuned because we are speaking to carl roberts chair of the judging panel for the GCAs um, very soon. Um, but in terms of the news, this week has been very busy with International Telecoms Week. Um, we have, of course, been putting out dailies throughout the show, as well as the August-September magazine and all the usual coverage online. And over the course of all that coverage, we have been covering the news that the Channel Tunnel is getting a new fibre link courtesy of Colt. Um, now, Alan, you covered this story. Tell us what's been happening. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the Channel Tunnel is the rail tunnel that links England to France or UK to Europe, if you prefer. And amazingly, um, it's 27 years old and 26 years since I first travelled on it from London to Paris. Um, and right at the start, the owners, it was built privately, realised it was a great conduit for fibre connections. And Global Crossing got the deal originally. Uh, because in the dot-com era it had bought British Rail Telecoms. And then Global Crossing was taken over by Level 3, and Level 3 was taken over by CenturyLink, which renamed itself Lumen. But that original lease is running out, and now Colt has won, as you said, a 25-year deal to take over the right to operate fibre through the Channel Tunnel. It's leaving the old fibre in place. I've been talking to Colt about it, and we'll continue with the deals that, uh, that Lumen has with other carriers but it's also going to be laying new fibre through the tunnels um, uh, and it's going to make part of its Colt IQ network, which I think is 100 gigabits a second, but is being upgraded to 400 gigabits a second uh, fairly shortly. Um, and, and of course, there is a resilience in the tunnel anyway, because there are actually three tunnels, one northbound rail tunnel, one southbound rail tunnel, and then a service tunnel in between, which electric vehicles go along uh, to make sure to service the equipment um, and so theoretically Colt could put fiber down all three and that creates some resilience in built in the system um, 
when there was there was a fire about 20 years ago in in one of the tunnels and the the trains kept going through the other tunnel i mean they're all insulated from each other with doors and all that sort of stuff so there is a built-in resiliency but i think natalie knows more about this than i there are lots of plans to build new subsea cables uh, across the channel i mean to compete with uh, the channel tunnel um, and one person i spoke to said they thought that cross channel via the tunnel would be more expensive than building a subsea cable system, which is why people like Crosslake Fiber are building new systems. But maybe that's clever pricing by the owner of the tunnel. Um, uh, there's no reason to charge, say, 25% less or even 75% less than the cost of a subsea cable um, if people will pay 100% of the price or 105% of the price. So, um, Natalie, I mean, you you follow the subsea industry. I mean, what do you see of that's going across the channel? Crosslake, yeah. I suppose, is the big one at the moment. Yeah, so you've got Crosslake, you know, which goes London to Paris. Um, and then you've got, for example, um, the Zeus cable, which I mentioned, which is a Zeo project, um, which actually runs um, parallel to its Cirque North um, cable. Um, and that one also goes um, UK to um, Europe. Uh, you've also got like BT North Sea, for example, that, that has two branches, but that goes UK to Netherlands and then another one that goes UK to Belgium. Again, still technically across the channel. Um, so it's interesting um, because, you know, I was thinking about it and it kind of reminds me of what we're seeing in the subsea space with the kind of OTTs and the content players in that aside from cross-channel fibre, Zeus, as far as we know, is a fully private cable. BT North, BT has made no indication that they're going to be selling capacity. All that they've said is that they want to kind of increase um the kind of um, reliability and diversity between the two regions. I mean, I suppose we can assume that they will be selling any excess capacity on that. Um, so, but a few of them seem to be kind of private systems and extensions of their existing networks. So if we think about it in that context, there may not be as many systems that we, you know that are kind of open and, and available to kind of buy capacity on um and it could possibly be that you know the kind of the ownership model is better in the long term in terms of you know pricing as you mentioned in transit prices haven't got any uh specific um kind of um numbers on transit prices um usually telegeography is usually very good for that but i haven't got anything kind of that's not a good three or four years old um wasn't able to find but I think it's face I think it's fair to say to say that it's probably that probably taking a slightly kind of content player based you know stance on this and thinking well you know if we're building this for ourselves you know there's none of these systems are consortium based you know they're just using it to kind of build out their networks but I would be interested as you mentioned Alan to know um how much you know the kind of the uh cult uh, fiber network how much you know there will be kind of uh pricing um their capacity for versus you know a subsea system the only other thing that i suppose that really sprung to mind was you know um the kind of length for example the cross channel fiber cable i think is about 500 kilometers in length the the channel tunnel is only about 50 kilometers in length you know will that add you know um a little bit uh less latency you know will there be any kind of you know speed advantages or, or anything like that but i think for the most part on the surface it probably will be a cost issue yeah it's it's 50 kilometers between uh 
Calais and Folkestone, which is where the, the terminals are at each side, the, 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 the big vehicle terminals for trucks and cars, and obviously the trains run through as well. But um, yeah, 50 kilometres. So I guess depends where the, the proper terminations are at each end, whether they then backhaul it to Paris and London or find a data centre nearby. I don't know. But uh, Colt gave some sort of clue as to what revenue they're giving revenue to the Channel Tunnel Company, which is 185 million euro. But that's over 25 years. So it's actually not very much a year. It's seven million euro a year or something like that. So uh, but I guess Colt can charge can charge what they want but uh, they as you said they they really said it would be part of the cult iq network but then when i've dug further with with people at cult they've said yes they will obviously um sell capacity to other operators who want that connection so i guess cult like they're, they're really branding it as part of cult's own network rather than being a, a consortium cable in the old subsea terms yeah, it's interesting. Of course, it's the oldest subsea route in the world from Dover to Calais. Um, 1851 was the first subsea cable. So That is true, yes. But then for the last 25 years, they haven't been able to, well, they haven't laid one in 25 years. And as we mentioned with Pioneer, that project's the first yeah. one in quite some time to cross the channel. And that is because of all the unexploded World War II bombs that lie at the bottom of the channel. Oh, and right. they had a huge survey that. to yeah. check for the bombs. Yeah, yeah. really, yeah. really interesting. Um, but no, there's so, a lot going on in this story, and it's a very high, high demand route as well, given everything that's happening at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So actually, putting your fibre in a, a concrete tunnel that's already been surveyed 30 years ago is exactly. really quite safe. Yeah. It's yeah. very a smart move. Congratulations to Kerry and her team. Um, because mm. also, is it subsea or is it terrestrial if it's in a tunnel under the it's sea? Not, it's, it's not on the telegeography map, the submarinecablemap.com. It doesn't have the Channel Tunnel link on there, which is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like they classify it as a terrestrial connection, but uh, but it's, mm, it is under the sea. The map yet. Yeah. yeah. No, well, yeah, I mean, the old one has been there since 1996 or seven. So, yeah, it's uh, which is why the 25 years is just coming up now. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's not there. Perhaps we should have a word with those people at Chile Geography and say, why isn't that there? You're braver than I am, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Natalie, moving to you now, um, because we had a lot of subsea stories over the summer while we were on our series break. Um, and it's also been really, really busy in the last week as well. So tell us what you've been covering. Well, yeah, there's been a lot of subsea stories, although I, I kind of opted for a non-subsea story this time around just because um, I think there's been so many of them. Um, and also, I suppose anybody who's been following would would have got the roundup from me with the uh, subsea newsletter. But this week, actually, I was going to focus on, in on um, the uh, data centre that uh, Sparkle actually launched, which is called Metamorphosis 2. Great name, by the way, um, which is actually the company's fourth centre in, in data centre in Europe. Um, now, what makes... This story interesting is not so much that it's a data center, but it's actually the claim that it's the first green data center in Greece. Now, firstly, I was stunned about to learn that, you know, only in 2021 did Greece get its first green data center. But of course, you know, as evidenced by, you know, Alan's feature in the um, August, September issue, um, it's a tricky thing to prove. Um, so according to the company, what makes the new facility green is that it adopts the latest energy efficient power and cooling systems, which actually result in reduced carbon footprint of of around uh, 28,000 tonnes per year. Now, interestingly, they don't tell us what that figure is down from. So, you know, 28,000 tonnes 
sounds great, but in what context, I suppose, has yet to be seen. Um, they say that the quality and energy efficiency of the uh, new data centre is actually confirmed by the Uptime Institute Tier 3 certification. Um, the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design or LEED Gold certification, which is essentially a green building certification, and the um, uh, ISO 14001 certification, which is the International Standard for Environmental Management Systems. Um, as to be expected, Met Metamorphosis 2 actually, along with all of the Sparkle facilities in the country are integrated with Nibble, which is Sparkle's uh, pan-Mediterranean optical network, as well as its uh, tier one global backbone, Seabone, um, which we've written about numerous times. Um, but what I found interesting upon digging is you you do have other players, you know, in the in the country, for example, like Lambda Helix, um, which is actually now part of Digital Realty. Not sure when that happened, but they actually have a huge data center presence across Greece. And, you know, they've kind of actively managed to reduce their PUE in their data centers by like 25% um, year over year. They have a, a whole host of other kind of um, kind of sustainable goals and, and things like that, um, if not explicitly uh, with those certifications that they mentioned. Um, but I think it's interesting um, that, you know, Sparkle's kind of laying claim to this first green data center um, in Greece. Um, great news. But um, yeah, I think it, it was an, an interesting um, claim to make, I suppose, for lack of a better word. Many of these sustainability claims are very interesting, but you raise a very valid point on the 28,000 tonnes. Is it 5%? Is it 50%? It needs context. Exactly, exactly. And it's certainly something I think I would uh, definitely be reaching out to kind of get a bit more clarity on. And um, I suppose sometimes as well, it's also down to us to kind of really look into what these certifications actually mean in terms of, you know, we see them all the time, but do we actually know what that means? Um, but, you know, we, of course, not to uh, take away any work that Sparkle's doing. But um, yes, I think it's um, it's an interesting one. And I'm really surprised that there hasn't been any other green data centres in the country, to be honest, so far. Um, I'm sure I'm sure there's a, probably a couple of others that may be able to say similar similar things. Mm. Yeah. And in that context, huge congratulations to Sparkle for being the first. Um, but yeah, context around the claims. Um, however, we are going to be talking about all things green data centres next week with our special guest from JLL. Um, more on that in due course. Um, but before we wrap up this discussion today, it brings us very nicely into the August-September edition of the magazine. Um, and Alan, you actually looked specifically at this issue for our cover story for this edition. Um, so tell us a little bit about that feature and the kind of things um, that you discovered as well. Yes, I mean, the the piece I wrote was headlined, it's complicated because one of the big issues with uh, data centers is that there is a, a, a number that everyone quotes, which is PUE, which is power usage efficiency, but or effectiveness. But in fact, it just means how much of the electricity that goes into the building is used for the data center and how much is used for everything from the elevators to the toasters to the Air, um, the air condition for the offices to the computers and but nothing to do with the data center so it's really doesn't say very much it doesn't say how much electricity we use to actually process data to store data or anything like that and there's a sort of movement to think yeah we ought to we ought to find a better metric and there are various people who are trying to do one but i don't think we're there yet um, and that problem is that the load is always different as someone said uh, if you're Netflix uh, and you've got a data center and you're just delivering just 
uh, you're just delivering bit streams to people who are watching movies and television programs and sports and things like that, then that's one sort of load. But if you're a company that's doing really heavy processing, uh, it's a completely different sort of load and it's hard to compare one with the other. Um, so the in industry has to do a lot of work to show how energy efficient they are. But as, as someone from Iron Mountain said to me, um, the industry does not want to waste money. It's, you know, it's a very competitive industry. It wants to use electricity as efficiently as possible. Um, so there is a, an incentive to use it, but it's a complicated issue. Um, and the thing that would be uh, as shown on our cover of this issue, this issue uh, the sort of thing you get on a refrigerator uh, and other kitchen products to show how much electricity it uses, how efficient it is. There ought to be something that shows how efficient data centers are, but on all those adverts and websites and things like that, you ought to be able to see how efficient it was. And that might be a real incentive to companies, you know, everything from supermarkets to uh, social media companies to use the most efficient data centers, but it's very difficult. Very difficult. Yes, hopefully somebody manages to crack that one soon enough. It was fun to write, and uh, I think this is an issue that we'll just keep coming back to because I think this is uh, an issue that with COP, the COP conference coming up this uh, uh, next month in Glasgow, and obviously, you know, climate is such an important issue. The climate emergency is such an important issue that uh, one myth that I sort of try to explode in the in the piece is that people who say that you shouldn't sit at home and watch movies on Netflix or other platforms are available, <laughs> Amazon Prime, et cetera, et cetera, that that's wasting electricity. Actually, you know, it's a lot more efficient to do that than to drive five miles to your nearest movie theater and watch there. Um, actually, the Internet is actually quite efficient, inherently very efficient way of doing things. So and we've all used less, less, less electricity over the last 18 months because we haven't been traveling or produced less pollution because we haven't been traveling anywhere. That's all very correct. Yes. And the grids are very slowly getting greener. Um, so that helps yeah. as well. That's a huge, huge part of the heavy lift for the industry. Um, fantastic. Thanks so much, Alan and Natalie, for the news. Um, moving on now, we are joined live today by Carl Roberts, who is partner at Hedara Consulting. And Carl also chairs the judging panel for the Global Carrier Awards. Now, the shortlist for this year's awards was released last week. It features more than 130 hopeful entrants, and you can find it online and in the August-September edition of Capacity Magazine. Now, after a fully virtual edition in 2020, the GCAs will return to London for a live ceremony in just over six weeks on October 20th. Um, so, Mr. Roberts, judging the entries is never an easy task, um, but your panel is comprised of 25 highly regarded industry personalities. So, first of all, tell us about the work that you and the judging panel have um, have been doing since the nominations closed. So, I don't think everybody really realises just how much goes into this process. Uh, thanks, Melanie. And yes, indeed, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, getting to a result on the Global Carrier Awards. Uh, it should not be underestimated um, because the, the, the time and effort the judges put in, and I can assure you, apart from being experienced and all wonderful people, they do put a lot of time in to ensure that we come to the right result in the end. 
and their job has been made even more difficult this year because um, just looking myself at the entries, uh, the, the quality is much higher this year, even the last year. Last year it was pretty high. So it, uh, it takes a lot of effort. Uh, the, the way it goes is the judges have about two weeks after the entries come in and uh, they each have a number of categories that they have to judge on. They have visibility of all the entries in each category, which allows them to come up with a ranking at the end. Uh, that wasn't always true in the past. Uh, it was a bit more random, but uh, this works. In a, it, it's, it's a better way of going about it. Uh, but even with that, uh, certainly the, the best entries are very difficult to um, to separate. So uh, kudos to the to the judges because the merit is all theirs. And uh, I'm delighted that we got to publish the shortlist and looking forward to celebrating the winners on October the 20th, which is actually just around the corner now. So very much looking forward to that. It is so close. It's six weeks and six days um, from when we record now on the 2nd of September and it will swing around. Um, so tell me about the shortlist next, Carl. Um, there's always trends here. There are always particular regions and technologies that we see dominating the shortlist. Um, what have you seen in 2021? Well, first of all, we've had a lot more entries overall. So we've uh, had, uh, just counting up, 255 entries over 35 categories. So it's an average of seven per category, which is uh, higher than last year. Uh, I said it was incredibly competitive. What I've seen this year, there's a big, big focus on anti-fraud and uh, security innovation. So everything around blockchain. Um, anti-fraud has come on a lot year on year. Uh, when I look back um, 12 months ago, uh, a lot of the solutions were more projects than accomplishments. Now there are a, a lot of uh, really very, very valuable solutions out there. The other very, very striking trend here is the presence of the Chinese carriers on everything mobile. So IoT, mobile and 5G. Uh, just looking at the uh, shortlists, um, you've got between those two categories, uh, six shortlisted carriers. Um, only one is not Chinese. So our friends Rogers from Canada, uh, the only ones blocking a total lockout there. So incredibly strong innovation in those areas coming out of China. Um, same can be said for cloud, actually. So very strong showing from uh, the Chinese carriers, which is good to see because last year they weren't that present. Also on the different projects, so a terrestrial, subsea and satellite, very, very tight competition there. Um, really quite uh, amazing how for very different reasons, uh, each of the entries really extremely strong. So very tough job for the uh, for the judges there. Um, I think the other thing that I flag is uh, you can see through the entries the increasing importance of software. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, anti-fraud and blockchain software's obviously got a lot to do about that. Um, SDN becoming much more of a conversation item in the entries as more carriers move to SDN platforms uh, to provide more flexible and on-demand connectivity solutions. And of course, we start to get into conversations about the edge. Uh, there's some strong entries talking about how carriers are facilitating the development of edge solutions. So a lot of really interesting 
stuff there. And uh, again, a great testimony to the dynamism of our industry. You know, I thought last year was a very, very strong showing. Uh, this year is actually, in my opinion, even stronger. So it's great to see that uh, our industry is alive kicking and a lot more competitive, which is great, uh, which means that um, you know anybody who's expecting to win on the 20th and are on the short list, not to forget that it's very, very tight across the board. So um, need to be there to find out who's going to win. Indeed, yes. Um, and looking ahead to that ceremony, um, it's very exciting that we're organising a live element this year as well. Um, and of course, for those who can't travel, they will be able to tune in virtually. Um, so tell us more about what we can expect on the night. Well, <clears throat> evidently, because uh, not everybody can be there, and uh, obviously it's a bit tricky from a um, from a time zone perspective for our friends in Asia, because uh, the event's going to be evening time in the UK, which means it's going to be the early hours there. Uh, so we will be recording everything. It, the event itself will be um, a mix of uh, live presentation and um, interspersed with videos. And the videos will be highlighting some of the entries, be highlighting some of the uh, judges. Um, we'll be taking a look at what happened in the industry um, over the year, so it will it'll keep it'll keep moving. It'll be let's say a lot more dynamic than usual in-person events because there's always going to be something going on there as the show will uh, roll on, and uh, that'll make it really interesting because uh, we used to having in-person events uh, last year. We did it totally virtually, and now we get to do a hybrid one. So that's going to be. Uh, fascinating to see how it all plays out. Uh, I know a lot of detailed preparation is going into that, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be really, really cool, but very much looking forward to it, I have to say. Us too. Us too. It's going to be a great event. Um, Alan, Natalie, um, do you have any questions for Carl? Firstly, are you going to be there yourself, Carl? What's yeah. travel from Dubai like at the moment? Well, Dubai Dubai is not the problem, actually. Uh, there's some kind of geopolitics which make it a little bit tricky um, because uh, having now four vaccinations in me, including two Pfizer, I discover that uh, the UK government, as I had those shots here in Dubai, doesn't recognise them, even though it's the same Pfizer you get in Europe. So I'll have the joy of doing a 10-day quarantine, fortunately, in a place I can choose. Uh, before coming to the show, but I will definitely be there. Um, so very much looking forward to that because it seems like ages, because it is ages since we've uh, gathered the industry together. And uh, you know, ha having the, the award ceremony live is uh, just, it's fantastic to be able to do that. So yes, I, I will be there. Well, crossing my fingers, of course, yep. but nothing changes between now and then, but yes, definitely be there. So one from me, um, Carl, is um, having had a look at the shortlist, I noticed that um, Best Strategic Acquisition was going to be disclosed on the day. Any reason for um, why there's no shortlist for that one? Any kind of special surprises there happening with that particular award? Well, we always have a special surprise. I mean, last year, a special surprise was about the Inclusion and Diversity Award. So uh, I said this will all be unveiled on the day. Uh, but uh, yes, we do have... Uh, we, we, we do have an, an award for that and uh, it, it merits being held back until till the day. 
Can't really tell you now, can I? <laughs> that would be telling, wouldn't it? I had to ask, no problem. <laughs> you know, we, we have had uh, some of the uh, folks on the shortlist uh, calling in, uh, asking for the result. And uh, of course, we don't do that. It's a bit of wishful thinking. So, yeah, everything is uh, all under wraps and all will be unveiled on October the 20th. Excellent. Yeah, I shall look forward well, to being there. At least I hope I'm there. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, and we do look forward to finding out um, about all those surprises on the night call. And we also hope that you're able to travel in without too many problems. Luckily, the um, travel lists and rules do kind of change quite frequently here. So hopefully the geopolitics will um, swing back in our favour. And I'm glad you don't have to stay in the faulty towers at Gatwick Airport for your quarantine. <laughs> you can choose somewhere better. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that, that would be rather dismal and expensive at the same time so uh yeah fingers fingers crossed for that and uh yes it's like it's going to be uh, good to be back and uh, i'm certainly expecting a, a very good turnout at the event um because uh you know i think a lot of the european carriers either did not go or sent you know reduced attendance to itw so i think this will be a really good opportunity for folks to get together um, and just do what we've always done, which is uh, network as human beings, which is so, so important. Because one thing for sure, I've spoken to obviously a lot of people, and despite you know the wonderful job I think that, that you've done on events since the pandemic started, you know, human contact is really what it's all about. And uh, renewing that and also celebrating the industry uh, which is what the awards will do, is just a you know, fantastic way of doing that. We've got a lot to be proud of. Uh, I think uh, the whole world has got through the pandemic thanks to what our industry has done. And it's so impressive to see what is going on in the background to accelerate enterprises and actually other carriers turning digital and all the underlying work that's involved in making that a reality. And when you see the quality of the inputs, you understand where the investment dollars are going, uh, what carriers are focusing on. It's really very uplifting to see that a lot of the, the right kind of stuff is going on in the background. And um, you know, we can be very proud of that, I think. Very true, Carl. Um, yes, and I'm sure there are many people who are going to be looking forward to shaking hands, bumping elbows, seeing each other in real life in, in a few weeks' time. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to speak with you and congratulations on another fantastic shortlist and what is shaping up to be a great ceremony as well. Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thanks, Carl. And thanks also to Natalie and Alan. And thanks to everybody who has listened. That brings us to the end of this episode. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space, as well as a special guest, as mentioned before, from JLL. But until then, we will not leave you without updates. Online, you can catch up with all the latest news from across the telco and data center industries, as well as some of the industries they impact over at capacitymedia.com. There you can sign up to our daily and weekly news alerts and also catch up with the August-September edition of the magazine, as well as the ITW dailies and details of our events calendar for 2021. For now, that's all from the team and I. Have a great week, take care and catch you next time.